Hi there, I'm Alan Vasfeldt and you're listening to the 61st episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. If you are new to the show, or if you're a long-time listener who's been waiting so long for this episode that you've forgotten what we're about, well, this is a South African astronomy podcast where we talk a bit about the basic science behind astronomy and where we talk to people who play some part in making South Africa's contribution to astronomy and astrophysics. So to recap, when the last episode came out, we were halfway through our third season and we were struggling to keep grinding along through the weight of the COVID pandemic. I've been extremely grateful in that nobody close to me has died or even been seriously ill, and for that I'm extremely grateful. The last episode was one of our patented science explainy bits, and in it I talked about spectroscopy, the almost magical-seeming techniques that scientists have used for centuries to accurately identify the component elements of substances from a distance, but that nobody really understood until the early 20th century. Well, today we meet Dr. Julia Healy, whom I was lucky enough to speak to last year before she'd finished her PhD. This recording has been sitting in an archive on my computer for over a year, waiting for me to recover my podcasting legs, and I'm so relieved that you're finally getting to hear it. Now, normally at this point, I take a few minutes before playing the recording for you to give some background information or to make announcements, but honestly, I think that at this point, it would be a bit rude to keep you waiting any longer. So, here she is, Dr. Julia Healy. My name is Julia Healy, um, and I'm currently a PhD student, um, currently based at the University of Groningen, um, which is in Groningen in the northeast of the Netherlands. Um, but I am doing my PhD as part of a, a double degree program, and so that means I'm jointly registered for the same degree at two universities. So my other university is, is at home in Cape Town, the University of Cape Town. Um, and yeah, I am doing my PhD in astronomy, um, with a focus on, um, galaxy evolution and and more specifically how environments play a role on the evolution of galaxies. So I, I study galaxies in dense environments, um, so galaxy clusters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look at the gas in, in these galaxies and how does the environment um, influence the gas content um, and why the gas is important is because that's where, um, where the stars eventually form from. And so if you cut off the gas supply, um, you can potentially shut off star formation, um, which triggers you know, evolution of, of galaxies or stops the formation of new stars and so the galaxy just gets old okay um yeah so i use um meerkat um to to get measurements of, of gas in galaxies but also other optical telescopes okay um from around the world um yes yeah, so that's my work um i'm from cape town mm-hmm. um so born and brought up in cape town um very proudly south african um, but enjoying the cold of the north at the moment. Right. Well, the not so cold, but the colder. <laughs> I want to ask you about this double degree situation. How does yes. it work? I mean, do you get two degrees at the end, or do you have two supervisors? Or you know, So I have, I mean, kind of all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one thesis um, that is supervised... In practice, by two supervisors, 
Um, but I actually have four, and I'll come back to them in a little bit why. Right. Um, but it's it's about my the- one thesis is then evaluated independently by both universities, um, and then I will graduate from both universities independently. So they'll both award me a degree independently, but it's for the same thesis, and it will be noted that it's done in conjunction with the other university. So there's no doctor, doctor title in my future. <laughs> yeah. It's just just doctor. Uh-huh. Um, the four supervisors, so I have two primary supervisors, one at, at both institutions. Um, but in, under the Dutch system, um, you're promoted to PhD. And so you have promoters, um, and your promoters have to be uh, associate or full professor. And so because of the fact that I'm split over two universities, my supervisor, my primary supervisor here in the Netherlands is a, is a professor, mm-hmm. um, but my supervisor in Cape Town, primary supervisor in Cape Town, is not. And so we had to have, for the Dutch bureaucracy, um, some more professors on, on board. Right. And so I have um, a professor, official professor supervisor in, in Cape Town, and then another one here. Um, so it's two on either side. Okay. But, yeah, I, I practically only have to um, to answer to two supervisors. It still sounds like, I think, more than most people deal with, well, my understanding. In, in South Africa, yes. Um, but it turns out that having a large, slightly larger committee is not that uncommon here. Okay. But having, I mean, usually it's about three. Having the full four, I think, is is mildly uncommon. Not as common, but it's not unheard of. Okay. So where did astronomy come from in your life? Oof. Um, uh, so I, I grew up wanting to be a pilot. Uh-huh. Um, I get and many of my, a couple of my uncles and my cousins are pilots now. And, and my father, is a, when I was a kid, um, put me into the cockpit of an Arx helicopter that had landed on on the um the breakwater in, in the, somewhere in Half Bay. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that was kind of it for me. The skies the skies were always going to be in my future. Yeah. Um and as I got older I was introduced to Star Wars. Yeah. And then space became part of my life. And then the question of, you know, well, I want to actually become an astronaut now as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, when it came time to choosing a degree for university, it was a choice of what would get me there that would be at least the closest. Given that South Africa doesn't have a space-faring space agency, yeah. um, you know, what what is likely to put me in, in the arena so that, you know, one day when I potentially... Um, I'm eligible for some spacefaring space agency. What degree is going to put me in the in the realm of that? Mm. And and astronomy was the natural choice. Um, I was already devouring history of astronomy books and encyclopedias, um, and staring up at the skies with my parents' binoculars at night, looking at what was out there. So that seemed the natural choice. And and once I got to university, it at UCT, um, 
falling into the the astronomy. Well, I went to UCT for the astronomy program. Yeah. Um, and and I fell in love with it. Okay. Um, and I guess the rest is history. Tell me, I see you are you benefited from the Hope Network. What is that? Ah, so the Hope Network, which my understanding is that it's um, it's closed down now. All right. Um, but it was a group of of women, um, who I can't remember how they met, but they they all were in in, in STEM fields, um, engineering. Um, one was an engineer, a cosmologist, um, some mathematicians, um, and and their whole goal was to promote and and foster mentorship of of women and young women in science. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd done they'd done some fundraising and um, they had some money, and they were trying to start this connection of a program, um, bringing young women over to. Um, to Princeton University to be part of their summer undergraduate research program in the astronomy department there. Um, so this was the, the South African and a member of the Hope Network on that side was um, Renee Lochek, who's um, now a professor at the University of Toronto. Okay. Um, and so they, they supported me going over to work with Renee for four weeks Right. Um, as part of the the undergrad uh, research program at, at Princeton, um, and I think that, I mean, that was such a I think crucial experience in in certainly my um, research career because that was my first real introduction, firstly to astronomy outside of South Africa, but also um, to to research into the research world, mm-hmm. um, and I am forever grateful. What was it like? I mean, it's a really quite a prestigious university. That yeah, yeah. So it was. I, I when I arrived, I was I was quite overwhelmed that I was it was my first ever trip on my own. Yeah. Um. And you know, internationally, and I arrived in Princeton, and it was quite overwhelming. Um. But the um the experience is amazing. I mean, the the grad students. Uh, not the grad students, the undergrad students that were also part of this program that I was working with um, were, were quite amazing. And I, I felt a little bit out of my depth. Um, I was one of the more senior undergrads, given that I was you know, six months short of graduating at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt a little bit on the back foot um, with some of them. Um, I mean, they were amazing, mm-hmm. amazing people. Um but it, it was a wonderful experience to um, to interact with the department um, and to see, you know, the encouragement that they had for us to ask questions. Um, one of the best pieces of advice um, that Renee gave me at that point was um, ask all your questions now. Once you get your PhD, people will start looking at you a bit weird for asking <laughs> those so-called silly questions. Yeah. Um, so she's like, ask whatever you like now. No one will judge you for it. Um, and I'm still not particularly great at asking questions, but I, I appreciate that advice. Um, and when I do ask questions, there aren't any funny looks. But it, yeah, it was, it was great. And to have been able to brush, brush shoulders with um, some of the astronomy greats. I mean, the Princeton department is, is home to some of the big names mm-hmm. in astronomy. Um, 
some of them I met, some of them I did not. Um, obviously, it was during the summer, so not everyone was there. Um, but I think that that whole experience showed me what um, what research could be about. Mm. Um, and and you make of it, you know, you make it your own, you, and and you set your own um, your own schedule. So many of the astronomers didn't turn up until ten, which I quite liked. Yeah. Although I'm an, an early bird, but um, I I liked that there was you know you made of it at what you will. Yeah. Um, you were talking about what you're studying at the moment. What you're interested in is mm. galaxy evolution, and mm-hmm. especially in uh, denser areas. Um, mm-hmm. You you talked about gas lots. You didn't mention dust or any. Is 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 the, uh, what 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 specifically are you studying? What, what are you trying to understand there? Um, so I study the, the neutral atomic hydrogen. So we see, um, or H1 as we call it. So this is hydrogen, um, one, one proton, one electron before it becomes molecular hydrogen. Um, so you don't find this form of this neutral atomic hydrogen. You don't find it on, on earth. It's very... You find it in very, very low dense environments, like you know, interstellar space. Is this the stuff you um, see on the, the the famous twenty one centimeter line? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, and so this is yeah. So it emits um, emits a photon during the um, spin flip interaction, um, uh, which is yeah. I'm not going to go into the physics of that, but. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so the, the long and the short of it is, yes, we it emits a photon at 21 centimeters, and, and we can see that in the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, the downsides to this emission line is that it is intrinsically very, very faint. Um, and so we have to, we need very, very big telescopes um, and often long observing times to be able to see, to be able to see it in distant galaxies. Um, so, um, the highest or the furthest, um, we've been able to directly detect, uh, H1 in galaxies is, oh, shucks, I'm going to have to do this in my head, um, <laughs> a redshift of about three seven, uh, 0.37, okay. um, which... Yeah, I don't have conversion Try. factors in my head, so I'll I'll just wait for you. <laughs> um, I don't have the conversion factors in my head either. Um, so normally, so point three seven is extremely far for us. Mm. Um, to put it in perspective, I think the highest redshift um, galaxies we know about, which we can see in infrared, are at redshift six. Mm-hmm. Um, so optical quite comfortably goes, and and infrared quite comfortably goes much further than that. Um, we've only got one direct H1 detection at this, at this redshift, really anything beyond a redshift of 0.1. I'm actually just going to look these up on a calculator because otherwise. Okay. So Um, while you do that, then I imagine to get a strong signal, it would have to be a very, very large, um, object that you're looking at. So um, that there would be... Yeah, I'm just so I'm just trying to work this out as I as I as I think uh, am I on the right track mm. or? 
Well, um, you know, we can see it in, in galaxies, and I mean, galaxies are large, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, we can detect um, H1 in, in dwarf galaxies, um, and dwarf galaxies are, you know, um, about a thousand times smaller than, like the Magellanic Clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a bit bigger than that. Um, so we can detect H1 in, in those kind of galaxies to, out to about, um, I'd, I'd hazard a guess, 10, 10 million, about 30 million light years. Okay. Um, in, in the field. So the important thing to remember here is, is, um, uh, and part of the reasons why I study um, galaxy clusters is these tend to be what we call H1 deficient. So as you move into denser environments, the processes which strip the H1 out of a galaxy become much more efficient. Okay. Um, and so detecting H1 in clusters turns out to be not particularly easy. Um, and so... Um, you know, the, the lower mass galaxies that we can detect are usually in very low dense environments or what we call the field. Okay. Um, what are these mechanisms that, that remove the H1? Um, so one of the, the more famous ones, I guess, is called RAM pressure stripping. Okay. So this is, this is quite common in, in galaxy clusters. This is when, um, so in the galaxy clusters, um, have a, often in the center, and we see this in the x-ray, intracluster medium. Mm-hmm. This is hot, uh, dense gas, not really associated with a particular galaxy mm. um, at the center of the cluster. Um, and when a galaxy comes into the cluster, comes flying through at a you know, high velocity, yeah. it comes up against um, the pressure exerted by this hot, dense gas in the center. So this very... Undense, whatever the word is for that, uh, H1 just literally gets blown out? Yeah, kind of gets stripped out. Okay. And and you sometimes see that um, in the form of tails behind a galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a part of so this project that I'm working on um, with, with our Meerkat data, um, we've um, joined with a group um, that's based in Italy who look at um, these so-called jellyfish galaxies. Um, and jellyfish galaxies are, are exactly these galaxies which, you know, they've undergone ram pressure stripping, and you see um, not necessarily neutral gas tails, but ionized gas tails. Okay. Um, that look, and so it, it kind of looks like a jellyfish. Right, um, okay. And so part of what what our, my side of the team's um, looking at is, you know, how, you know, if we identify these things with, with ionized gas, what does the neutral gas look like? Has it been stripped out in the same fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, is, there, is there ongoing star formation in the tails? You know, have these things happen on the t- same timescales? 
yeah, many other different questions. So then are you looking at just what happens to the to the H1 gas or are you looking at how different levels affect the, the evolution of the galaxy or both? Um, both. Okay. Both. Um, so, um, so we look at more than just the gas in the galaxy. So um, knowing the gas content of a galaxy is great, but it doesn't tell you anything. Hmm. Um, so it's, this is where having um, ancillary information from from optical is very and, and infrared is very important. So the optical data tells us, well, from that we can get a redshift or a, a distance measurement to the galaxy. Um, we can, so it's from the, the optical spectra. Mm-hmm. Um, from optical images, we can obtain uh, color information. Color is um, basically just the kind of some of the, the integrated light from all the stars in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So it tells you something about the age of the stars in the galaxy. So bluer colors tend to be younger stars. Redder colors are older. Mm-hmm. Um, that turns out to also be slightly correlated with, with ongoing star formation. Um, from the... From the also, from the optical images, we can get the morphology or the, the shape. Um, and, and that's fairly important to my work because... Uh, well, I'll come back to why that's important to my work. Um, and then from the from infrared information, we can get um, the total stellar mass of the galaxy. Um, and we can also get star formation rates and, and star formation histories. Mm-hmm. Um, so we then, you know, you, you get a multi-wavelength picture of this galaxy, and, and then from that you can start to to kind of put all the pieces together. Because um, the thing with astronomy is, you know, we've got one one experiment, one snapshot. Yeah. Um, so it's it's important to have as much information so that you can use similar um, environments at different stages to infer. Um, you know what's what's happened. Yeah, if that makes sense. Um, and then, and why I say the morphology is quite important for my work is um, we see this trend um, across different environments, where in um, uh, less dense environments you tend to see more spiral type galaxies. Mm-hmm. Where um, and as you move to more dense environments, like galaxy clusters you tend to see more um, elliptical-type galaxies. Is this because um, a denser environment you're going to have more interactions between galaxies? Um, well, yes, we think so, but we also don't know what the underlying cause of this. They call it the morphology-density relation. Um, so that, that's a big part of my work is trying to understand the, under, you know, the underlying physics. What causes it? Mm. Um, it it most likely has to do with the fact that you know, um, uh, gas stripping processes are much more efficient in groups and galaxies. You've got you know high density of things, so um, galaxy galaxy interactions are more common. Mm. Um, but you know the, there's no you know I don't think anyone is hundred percent certain what causes it. it. At the moment, it's just a we've observed this. Yeah. Is there anything you want to want to highlight, or that that um, that you discovered, or that you're proud of, or 
Um, well, I guess, you know, one of the, the most exciting things certainly recently has been working on this Meerkat project. Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd been working, um, the first part of my PhD had been working on a, on a different cluster, the Coma cluster, um, which is at about 100 million, sorry, 300 million light years away. Right. Um, and it's a very old cluster, um, very uh, fairly settled. So we didn't. I mean, there's and and there's lots of galaxies. There's more than a thousand galaxies in in this cluster. Mm. But out of out of the thousands of galaxies that we know about in that cluster, we only directly detected the hydrogen in forty about forty galaxies. Um, which makes things you know bit more difficult to to work out what's going on yeah um but when we put in this proposal to observe a different cluster it is slightly smaller than coma um able 2626 um but we put we we've observed it with with meerkat it's about two and a half times more distance than, distant than coma is mm-hmm. um and why that's important is is because it makes it quite a bit more difficult to detect the h1 at that distance. Yeah. Um, but with Meerkat, um, in a relatively short amount of time, we managed to get to the same kind of detection threshold okay. as we did with Coma. Um, Is that because of the instruments or, or yeah. something? Okay. Yeah. So Meerkat is so much more sensitive than I think we expected. Yeah. Um, and it it's just it's been incredible. It's incredible to see what the South Africans have built. It is such an amazing machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so this cluster now that we've observed with Meerkat, where I was expecting a couple of tens of direct H one detections, we've to date found more than a hundred. Okay. Um, which is incredible. Um, and, and definitely not what I expected. And, and I think a large part of this is, is due to the sensitivity of Meerkat. Right. Um, the South Africans have put together an instrument that is, is definitely going to change the way that we, we see the radio sky. Mm. Um, and, and I'm incredibly proud to be, to be able to use it and, and to say, you know, to say, you know, these are my country mates that have done this. Yeah. Um, How long have you been observing yeah. through it? Um, well, I mean, so Meerkat's been Meerkat sixty four has been online, I think, since July twenty eighteen. Yeah, thereabouts. Um, my data was only taken over three nights um, in July twenty nineteen. And you got your all those detections just from three days, three nights. Wow. <laughs> It wasn't even three full nights, um, so it was effectively sixteen hours. Yeah, um, we had on target. Sure. Um, yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, whereas my my other data set with uh, with Coma came from the Westerbork Radio Telescope, which is here in the Netherlands. Mm. Um, and it it so Westerbork has a much smaller field of view, so they had to to do multiple pointings. Right. Um, and and many more hours, um, whereas we got essentially the same thing in in one pointing with sixteen hours with Meerkat. So Meerkat is incredible. I, I mean, sensitivity is amazing, 
but also its um, field of view is also so it can see about a degree in the sky in one go. Okay. Um, which is you know for surveying um, clusters and things is is spectacular. It's such a strange idea to me because I, I still think of a radio telescope as seeing a single point which you then have to scan. Um, yeah. Do they do that or do they? They must surely. What, what do you mean? Do they scan across the sky? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it doesn't yeah. have a sensor which with multiple pixels the way a, an optical camera would do. Or, or am I out of date when I, when I say that? Um, so Meerkat doesn't. But um, they've just upgraded the Westerbork telescope um, with these uh, uh, feeds called uh, phased array feeds. So you go from a single, and and this is what's also on on ASCAP, the the Australian mm. the Australian essentially equivalent to Meerkat. So they have these what they call phased array feeds, um, and these are multiple. Um, essentially, feed horns that are put onto the onto the, the, into the instrument bay of the telescope, okay. so that you effectively get more than one essentially pixel mm. on sky. And so, ASCAP, I think, has forty um, forty simultaneous beams. Okay. Um, uh, Westerbork or Apatif, as it's now called, is I think thirty six. Stand corrected, though it might be forty, mm-hmm. um, and and this takes you know the field of view from um, very small. So I think um, it was tiny. Oh, I think it was about the size of the moon, up to eight square degrees. Wow. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, that's very big. Yeah, um, as cap. Um, I think their field of view now is something ridiculous, like thirty square degrees, which means that it's it's pretty incredible. I, I saw some of the the early early science results at a conference last week from ASCAP. Mm. There, it, that's an amazing survey machine. Yeah. Um. So, so they're going to be able to see you know the entire southern sky and and observe it pretty quickly. That's which amazing. Which is fantastic. You know, I yeah. I write a lot about. You know, SKA and its precursors, and I'm just every time I just find more and more, just not more details, more entire areas of <laughs> of capabilities, and it blows my mind. No, there's some incredible machines. One more thing, and it's a bit cliched mm. to ask because I always ask this, and I think everyone always asks this. Um, for young South Africans interested in following. A similar career path to what you've done, with interested mm. in astronomy or physics or science in general. What would you tell them? What what advice would you give them? To never stop dreaming. Um, you know, one of one thing that can never be taken away from us is our dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you can dream it, you can do it. Um, and and I I've been particularly lucky in. And how I was brought up, my parents um, have always encouraged me to dream and have never said, you know, this is, that's impossible. You know, South African going to space, I'll never have, no. Um, they, my mom and dad have, have always encouraged me to dream and, and have supported those dreams. Mm. Um, 
And so, you know, to any to any young South African or any young person wanting to go into science, you know, just because it's not possible now doesn't mean that it's not going to be possible in, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. So dream, you know, and, and have faith in yourself. So thank you again for your time, Julia, and thank you for your patience waiting so long to finally hear how the interview went. Now, in the time since the last episode, I've had some messages come in from some surprisingly loyal listeners through our email address at podcast at urban-astronomer.com and in the comments on the urban-astronomer.com website. First up was Lee, no last name given, who wrote, Hi, Ellen. I just wanted to say a big thank you for your podcast. It helped me so much throughout lockdown and Urban Astronomer has been a must to listen. Well, thank you, Lee. Lee went on to add that they'd included Urban Astronomer in their Astronomy Podcasts Guide alongside such luminaries as Star Talk Radio, Universe Today, Astronomy Cast, and of course, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Now, I don't normally do the mutual boosting thing where two strangers on the internet endorse each other to get engagement, so please don't ask. But I had a bit of a chat with Lee, and I got to know them a little bit, and after complimenting me by listing me on all those other big-name shows, I'd have to be pretty rude to not at least give them a shout-out. So if you'd like to check them out, open your web browser and head over to backyardstargazers.com. That's all one word. And if you'd like to see their recommended list of podcasts, then just enter the word podcast in their search bar or click the link that you'll find here in this episode's show notes. Next up was SH who responded to episode 58, in which we discussed how our view of the sky changes depending on whether we're in the northern or southern hemisphere. SH says, I found this podcast fascinating. Whilst I found a fair bit of it difficult to grasp entirely, and I enjoyed replaying much of it several times to better try to understand some, it was very interesting. Thank you. Well, SH, that's, that's extremely gratifying, and it's exactly why I do these explaining bits. I do understand that why you had to replay bits of it as well, though. Normally, when people explain these things, they'll have visual aids, diagrams, or models of the Earth that they can hold up and turn around to show you exactly what's going on. It's pretty tough to try and do that with just my words, but this is a podcast after all, and words are all I have. And I do love the challenge of trying to explain things in this way, because it helps me to really bed down my own understanding. It's not just you, the listener, who is learning something, because I find that when I have to try and explain these things, I end up thinking about them more deeply than ever before in fresh and original ways, and by the time the episode is recorded, I've given myself a much better understanding as well. Our final message is also a comment left on the same episode, and it's by Pete LaRue. Pete writes, Very interesting podcast, Alan. Very well explained without any visual aid. Maybe you could follow it up with an explanation of precession and proper motion. I think a lot of amateur astronomers have a problem understanding the subtle movement of objects in the sky, including the interaction between objects in our solar system. What does J2000.0 coordinates mean, and why should you not enter on-the-date coordinates on a go-to system with a J2000.0 database? I know it's not your cup of tea, but would those with go-to systems find it surprising to learn that the planetary data is less accurate than the star and deep sky object database of their go-to system, and that they should never sink on a planet? Thank you and keep well. Well, thank you, Pete. I appreciate the compliment. Uh, The follow-up question that Pete suggested is a bit more subtle than what I've covered so far, but it is also an important one, and I touched on it very lightly in episode one, way back in February 2017 as part of a segment where I challenged flat-earth believers with a long list of proofs that the Earth is round. 
One of my points which demonstrates aspects of the Earth's motion through space is precession, which has no explanation in any of the different flat Earth models that I'm aware of. I'll definitely do a future episode on exactly what precession is and why it matters, but for now let's just say that while the Earth spins on its axis, it also wobbles gently in exactly the same way that a spinning top tends to wobble, except that each individual wobble takes about 26,000 years, and the wobble is wide enough that the stars and constellations change their positions in the sky relative to vantage points on Earth from year to year. That movement is small enough that a casual observer will never ever notice it, but it is enough to cause problems for navigators who use the stars to find their position. Anyway, we're at the end of the episode, so if you enjoyed the show and would like to help out in some way, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you liked and what you didn't like. And if you know somebody who might also have enjoyed the one, let them know about the show. If you're listening in South Africa, odds are they don't know much about podcasts, so you'd need to teach them how to set up a podcast app on their phone and search for the Urban Astronomer podcast. But you'd be doing them a favor. Podcasts are the best thing you can do with a phone. Our next episode will be another Science Explainy bit, and it's going to be a little bit more philosophical than usual. Given how much of a knock the credibility of science communicators have taken over the past two years, I'll be talking about one of the basic tools of language used by anybody who has to try and convince anybody else that something is true, and that's rhetoric. I know, I know, I'm supposed to be a scientist and to let the evidence and the facts speak for themselves, but you cannot live on planet Earth after more than a year and a half of watching thousands of different flavours of pandemic and vaccine denialism take root in the most unexpected people and tell me that you still believe that. Facts are only as good as their believability, and if you can't convince people that the actual facts are more truthful than some other made-up facts that they saw on YouTube, then you might as well have no evidence at all. Subscribe now! to be sure you catch that episode and learn exactly what I'm talking about. I assume nobody trusts me anymore to put out an episode on time, so your best bet is to simply subscribe to the show in your podcast app. But if you don't like to download podcasts on your mobile data, if, like many South Africans, you find the data costs are prohibitive and prefer to play these episodes directly from the website when you're on Wi-Fi, we do have a subscribe by email facility. You'll find that on the show notes page just underneath the play button. When the episode comes out, you'll get an email letting you know all about it with a link to the page. Just a little convenience that saves you having to keep coming back and hitting refresh. Anyway, I hope to catch you when it comes out, but until then, enjoy the change of seasons and try to catch those last few clear nights before the rainy season settles in. Cheers! Cheers!